Are you a real estate investor looking to elevate your income, freedom, and lifestyle? If so, optimize your daily performance by downloading our free guide, Raising the Bar, Five Steps to Elevate Your Habits at elevatepod.com. In this guide created by yours truly, you'll learn why you do what you do, how to easily institute cues in your environment to trigger desired behavior, directly applicable steps to create a fulfilling future, and much more. Get your free copy now at elevatepod.com and kickstart your new habits today. Your future self will thank you. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chester. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I am blessed and grateful to be sitting with the kind, wonderful, and genius Olivier Sibini today. And uh, you are going to learn so much today about noise, about cognitive bias, about decision-making mistakes, but also about self-awareness mastery and how you can take your decision making to the next level. Because as investors, we are always making decisions. We're making decisions on particular investments to make, team members to bring on board, partnerships to structure, particulars in terms of the partnerships that we want to structure. We're always thinking about how much are we going to pay for a particular asset? You know, how are we going to structure those deals? How are we going to structure the financing, the equity? Um, how are we going to structure our renovation plans? We are making decisions constantly. And if we're focused on outcomes and creating more optimal outcomes through real estate in our life, we've got to be aware of these inherent cognitive biases that we have, as well as noise. At the end of the day, you're going to learn so much about that noise and remedies to cure that and improve the way that you interact with a constantly changing and uncertain environment, whether it's in a pandemic or not. So I think you're going to find massive value from today's episode. Elevate Podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors. I'm your host, Tyler Chester. I'm a professional real estate investor and high-performance coach. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar today. Welcome to Elevate. If it's your first time listening, we are so glad and thankful to have the opportunity to pour into your cup today. Get ready to receive massive value. We are grateful for you. If it if you've been here many times, welcome back. And I just want to thank every single person for listening or watching Elevate. You are important to us. You are important to me. And uh, we want to show you how much we care about you by adding massive value. I want to invite you to pay the fee. The fee is to share this episode with one person. All you have to do is grab the link, send that in a text message, an email, post it on social media, send it in a direct message, whatever you have to do to share this episode. That's all we ask because the only way that we can continue to grow is if we earn the value of your introductions, just like any business, you know, by, by referral. And uh, we've been very thankful to have received many, many introductions over the past couple of years. Really, we've been doing this for two and a half years now, and I'm going to continue to add massive value to you. So go ahead and pay the fee. Also, give us a rating, review, subscribe, or follow Elevate Podcasts and wherever it is that you listen or watch podcasts. That is extremely important for us as well. It's extremely important for you if you want to be notified of future opportunities to listen and to receive massive value. We'll notify you immediately. And by the way, we release two episodes every single week. And um, also those ratings and reviews. By the bottom of my heart, I'm so thankful for all of you who have already left a rating and review. That's important for us as well. And if you have not done so already, please go ahead and spend 10 to 15 seconds and uh, give us a rating and review. With all that said, I'm done with my ass today. Now I'm ready to drop in massive value into your earphones. So uh, let's go ahead and dive in. I want to introduce you to Olivier Sibony, who is very simply a strategy professor and the co-author of Noise, which is a New York Times bestselling book. And you're going to find so much value in today's episode. And you're also going to have a lot of fun because Olivier is very fun. He's very uh, happy-go-lucky and um, energetic in terms of sharing his expertise. So I think you're going to learn so much today. And I hope you enjoy this amazing discussion with Olivier Sibony. Olivier Sibony, welcome to Elevate, my friend. How are you? I'm fine, Tyler. How are you? 
I'm outstanding. And I really appreciate you taking time to uh, share your wisdom today and share your perspective. And, you know, I just was telling you before we started our recording that I just appreciate uh, your commitment to serving and sharing your expertise and your curiosity with the world. So thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. And thanks for having me. My pleasure uh, as well. So uh, before we dive into this conversation, Olivier, if you were to describe yourself in the way that the people that know you best uh, would describe you, what would you say about that? Well, people who know me best today tend to tell me that I'm a born professor and that you know I, I, I am so gifted at being a professor. And you know, the funny thing about this is that I've only been a professor for six or seven years. And before that, no one had any inkling that I would ever be a professor, including myself. And no one, and I mean no one, had ever told me that I should be a professor. So this is a brilliant example of hindsight bias, of how everything seems obvious once you see it. But when I was wondering what to do after being a consultant for 25 years, I had no idea I would be a professor. And in fact, at the time, everybody was telling me, oh, you're such a great consultant. It's obvious that you were born to be a consultant. So, you know, everything is obvious once you know the answer, as, as a great book uh, has its title. <laughs> you're born, you know what, you're, you're a born great podcast guest. That's, that's what I'll tell you right now. So. <laughs> you were meant Another for example. <laughs> that's awesome. So, Olivier, tell me a little bit about your upbringing, your backstory. Um, for the listeners who may not be familiar with sort of where you came from, obviously, you just mentioned a little bit of your professional yeah. backstory, but give us a sense of where you came from. Yeah. So, first of all, I'm French. You've probably heard that in my accent already. Um, I was born in Paris, and I still live in Paris. I spent a few years living in the U.S., and I spent a few years living in England, but other than that, I've always lived in Paris. Most of my career, uh, I've been a management consultant. I was with McKinsey and Company for 25 years. I was a senior partner there, and I had various leadership roles in the firm, including in the strategy practice. And when the time came for various reasons to think about what else I wanted to do and what I wanted to do with the second half of my career, um, after some you know, thinking and also some experimentation, frankly, it turned out that I was interested in doing research and teaching on the topic of how we make decisions. That's a topic that I've always been intrigued by. I've always been intrigued by how my clients, when I was a consultant, were making decisions. Um, and my clients were amazing people and they were great, but sometimes they would do really crazy stuff. How we as consultants were making decisions, and I thought we were pretty good, but sometimes we would make crazy mistakes. And I stumbled upon uh, what your listeners will recognize as behavioral economics or behavioral psychology or cognitive psychology more broadly as a way to think and a way to explain those observations that I, I had made in the real world. And so I decided to spend the second half or maybe the the last fifth of my career, we, we won't know until I'm dead, um, on, um, on that second topic, uh, I went and got a PhD and I started being a professor and I started writing books and I've written a couple of books and a few academic articles and that's what I do. And I'm speaker in conferences and those kinds of things. And it's a great life. I highly recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So what is it about behavioral psychology or decision making that still to this day continuously, it almost seems like endlessly fascinates you? So what is it about that that really captures your attention to the to the degree that you've committed to your life and your, your professionalism to? What endlessly fascinates me is how wrong the model that we all have in mind about how people operate is. I was, you know, literally not a day goes by when without, without this striking me. Today, I was talking to uh, someone connected to the political world, uh, never mind who it actually was, but um, about how, how do we get people to stop believing crazy propaganda about vaccines? And the implicit assumption was, if you want people to change their behavior, get the shot, you need to change their beliefs. Vaccines are bad for you. Basically, everything we've learned about psychology in the past 
half century tells us that's not how it works. You first get people to change their behavior, then they will get to change their beliefs. If you want them to get the shot, you make it easy, you make it fun, you make it attractive, you make it what their friends do, you make it be the thing that is recommended by people they like and trust. And some of them will get it, and then they will change their beliefs, and that will turn others into believers and so on. It's one example among many, but the basic belief that, and it's a very French belief, it's a very Cartesian belief, it comes from Descartes, right? Uh, you know, the, the basic belief that I think, therefore I am, and I think, and what I do will be the result of what I think, and whatever I do, I have reasons to do, and those reasons are reasons that can be modified by rational arguments, all these beliefs, which I've been taught since I was a kid and which everybody everywhere is basically taught everywhere and which every economic theory and marketing theory and financial theory is based upon are really problematic. <laughs> and I find that endlessly fascinating. I do too. And um, I actually, I, I wrote down the, um, I guess the equation here that beliefs equal behavior just while taking notes of, uh, you know, what you were just sharing. And I think that that is really powerful. And it's something that, you know, many of the listeners I'm sure resonate with when you think about, you know, do we believe that something is possible? Well, then we are going to behave in the manner that perhaps puts us at least in a position to create that reality. And so I think that's a foundational, you know, belief of really elevate and, and what we're all about here. So that resonates with me very deeply. And um, I think that it's interesting because when we start there, we can change our future, right? And so that's why I wanted to really talk to you today and, and understand more about not only your fascination, but your expertise in it. And so let's talk about noise because you just wrote this book, Noise, and it's it's become a worldwide phenomenon in, in so many different ways. And you've brought this concept to, you know, really the purview of so many people who may not have ever been familiar with this concept. So could you talk about what noise is to start? Quite simply, noise is the unwanted variability in our judgments. So I've said quite simply, but actually each of those words requires some elaboration. First, what judgments am I talking about? If we're talking about your judgment that you like tea and I like coffee, or you like uh, you know, Taylor Swift and I prefer Bob Dylan, it's not a problem. We, we can agree to disagree. Our judgments do not need to be identical. It's okay if they vary. It's okay, by the way, if you like Taylor Swift today and you like Bob Dylan next year, it means you've matured, in my opinion. But, <laughs> but you know, that, that would not be a problem. Where variability in judgments is a problem is when we believe there is a correct answer. If you think the value of a property is a million, and I think it's a million and a half, then one of us, maybe both, but at least one of us must be wrong. In that particular case, if one of us is wrong and buys and the other is right and sells, then one will be the winner and the other will be the loser. So variability in that situation may not be a problem still. Where variability becomes a problem, if you and I, is, is if you and I are working in the same company and the assessment of whether that property is worth a million or two is made by one of us depending on who happens to be available or who happens to be less busy. And if the company trusts you or me to make that assessment, and we discover that with the fact that you or me has been assigned this task makes a big difference, then the organization has a problem. That is noise. And that is the noise that you find when, depending on which doctor you meet in a hospital, you're going to get a different diagnosis, which unfortunately is frequent, where if depending on which asylum judge decides on, is, is gets to hear your case, you're going to be admitted into the US for asylum or not, that can be a huge difference. Where depending on whether the judge who hears your case in a criminal court uh, is judge A or judge B, you're going to be sentenced to one year in prison or life in prison. And those are literally the types of differences that we're talking about. That's noise, that's variability where we wish there weren't variability because we believe there is a correct answer and getting as close as possible to the correct answer is what we want. So judgments is where we think there is a correct answer. Variability is where they vary. Unwanted variability is where they vary and we think they shouldn't. That's noise. 
it's a great example, especially the one of which, you know, if you have two different decision makers within your investment firm, as an example, and one is available and one believes the value of an asset is significantly different than the other, and you're making that decision, obviously you've got a huge variability in terms of potentially the outcomes uh, on the back end, because, you know, as they say, you make your money on the buy in real estate in many capacities. And so that it's very interesting. We, we, we actually did that experiment, not in a real estate company, but in a hedge fund that invests in various securities. And we presented to them analysis that we had done in, uh, in insurance, uh, which we talk about in the book, but never mind that one. And their reaction was, well, that's very interesting, but we're pretty sure that given the methods that we use and the, the uniform training that our people receive, we're going to have less variability in the way we evaluate security. So we did a little, little experiment where we, we gave a description of a company and we asked a number of the analysts in the company, in, in, the, in, in the hedge fund, um, what would be the fair price of that company, the price at which you would be indifferent between buying and selling. And if you randomly picked two of the analysts of the same company looking at the same data and applying the same methods, if you randomly took two of their answers, the difference between their answer, the median difference was 41%, which is less than we had found in insurance, by the way, a bit less. But it's still a lot more than you would expect in a system that relies on the assessment of one person to make a decision on behalf of the firm. That is the, 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 the fundamental problem of noise. And what is always interesting about those experiments is that they always surprise the management of the firm. You know, the fact that there is variability between judgments is not in itself a problem. By definition, when we say something is a matter of judgment, we imply that it's tolerable, even expected, that there will be differences between two qualified, competent, and well-meaning people. You know, if I say, if I ask you how much is six times seven, that's not a matter of judgment. There is a correct answer, and we expect everyone to agree precisely. But if I ask you, what's the probability that it will rain tomorrow? You know, if you say, well, I think it's 70% and I say it's 75, that's okay. It's a matter of judgment. The problem is that the difference is typically not between 70 and 75. It's between one and, and 50. It's a lot more than we expect. That is the fundamental problem that we uh, were intrigued by and that we try to discuss in noise. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you bring up the example of analysts in a hedge fund and there being a 41% difference in evaluation of a particular acquisition. I, I find it to be interesting. And I almost, my mind goes to the point of the other example that you just shared about six times seven, like there is an answer. There's no variability in the true answer to that question. And if I combine those two examples to say, all right, if we have two analysts in a company and we're operating on the same assumptions and we're utilizing the same formulas and methods towards valuation of a particular asset, why would we have a variability in judgment of valuation in that standpoint? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Because whatever methods you're using are not a cookbook recipe where you specify exactly what needs to be done. If that were the case, you would have replaced your analysts with a computer already, with, with an algorithm. If you could specify precisely what needs to be done in the data and there was no human judgment at all in there, well, then you wouldn't need human judgment. By the way, that's the path that a lot of human judgments have taken. Many, many years ago, actually not that many years ago, but you know, 20 years ago, if you wanted to get a consumer loan, you would go to your local branch of your bank and some branch manager would interview you and say, well, Tyler, you look like a responsible man. You know, tell me about your life. Do you, do you go to the same country club that I go to? How many children do you have? Do you have the kind of lifestyle that makes you the responsible, reliable person to whom we are prepared to lend some money? And based on that judgment, the I'm of course, you know, <laughs> simplifying and making a bit of a caricature here, but you see what I mean, based on human judgment, a decision would be made to give you or not to give you a loan. Today, some algorithm somewhere based on your credit rating decides whether you get that loan or not. So a lot of decisions that were historically judgment have stopped being judgments. And it's a safe bet that a lot of judgments that are made today will be automated tomorrow. 
Having said that, a lot of very important decisions, especially in the world of investment and especially in the types of investments like real estate, where not everything can be easily quantified and where not any not everything can be compared to massive databases and so on, a lot of those decisions are going to remain matters of judgment. And those are the ones that we are interested in knowing more about. That's a really good point. And I think about that. And it's like, in one sense, it's like, let's remove human error or human judgment from the process so that we can, you know, eliminate noise and, you know, this cognitive bias perhaps. But on the other sense, you know, when you think about looking at any real estate investment, there are a lot of intangibles that you cannot perhaps measure or that need to be built into your model or to your underwriting, your framework to be able to effectively analyze the risk or the upside of a, of a particular acquisition. So I think that's very, very insightful, but I want to dive in even further, maybe even kind of take it back a step in terms of noise. Like where does it come from? Why are we so susceptible to it? And, and you've described it as our decision-making enemy, right? And, and really kind of the, the depths of it, but where does it come from and why are we so susceptible to noise? So where does it come from? We, we distinguish between three types of noise. And the, the, the best way to uh, describe them is to take an example. Take the example of judges who are hearing the same case and who give you completely different answers. Now, just to be clear, when we say judges give different answers on the same case, I mean on the same case. I don't mean for the same crime. So I'm not at all implying that you know, every person convicted of shoplifting should get exactly the same sentence or that there should be a minimum sentence for whatever crime or that you know, th three strikes and you should be out or anything like that. That's a separate issue. I mean that if we are talking about the same defendant in the same case, having behaved in the same way during the hearing, we would expect that the personality of the judge should not make a difference. At least that's a legitimate aspiration of a judicial system, and yet it does. So what does that come from? Where does that variability come from? First, there is the fact that some judges are on average lenient and others are on average severe. If I give 100 identical cases to two judges, maybe Judge Tyler, who is a kind, you know, nice person on average, will say, you know, my average sentence is five years and Judge Olivier, who is a tough SOB, will give an average sentence of 15 years, right? So we call that one level noise. That's the one, the, the difference in the average level of the judgments of different individuals. That one is relatively easy to fix, by the way. When, when you're talking about grading in schools, where this is a frequent problem, you know, most schools now will ask their professors to have an average grade that is predetermined and have a distribution of the grades that are predetermined so that that level noise is eliminated. But in systems where that is not taken care of, you have level noise. Second, Judge Tyler may be kind-hearted and Judge Olivier may be tough, but there are days when Tyler is in a bad mood and when Olivier is feeling generous. And there are situations where Tyler has just seen three really horrible cases and the next one is going to seem you know, almost acceptable by comparison, whereas Olivier has seen three very uh, minor offenses and the next one by contrast seems absolutely awful. So a lot of things in the context of how we make decisions change our own decisions from one moment to the next. The verdict you will give today is not the one you, will, you would have given to the same case yesterday and not the one you would give to the same case tomorrow. Of course, as a judge, if you recognize the case, you would try to be consistent with yourself. But if you didn't recognize the case, you would actually not be that consistent with yourself. You would be influenced by a lot of things. You would be influenced by things like the ones I mentioned and also by things that we don't suspect, like the fact that it's before lunch and you're hungry, that makes a difference. The fact that it's hot out there and that puts you in a bad mood, that makes a difference. The fact that your favorite football team lost the game during the weekend, that makes a difference. All these examples are documented by studies that quantify how much of a difference those factors make, which obviously they shouldn't make. We call this occasion noise. It's the fact that from one occasion to the next, we are not identical in making the same judgment. So we have level noise, we have occasion noise. And then we have the third one, 
which is the least intuitive and in fact, the largest. And it is this, if I take 10 different cases and I ask Tyler and Olivier to rank them from worst, you know, that deserves the worst punishment to least serious that deserves the least severe punishment, our rankings are not going to be the same because the things that really offend and horrify you are not the same things that really offend and horrify me. Maybe you are especially tough on first-time offenders because you want to send them a very loud signal that you know, this will not be tolerated, whereas I'm comparatively lenient with first-time first offenders because, hey, it's the first time. And maybe you are especially tough on people who you know, whose victim is an elderly person, uh, and I don't regard this as a particularly aggravating circumstance. We have different tastes. We have different patterns of judgment, and that has to do with our personalities, our experiences, our values, our beliefs. Basically, it has to do with the fact that we're different people. Whenever we expect different people to have identical judgments, we're going to be disappointed. And a lot of systems, a lot of systems in which people are assumed to be interchangeable and are assumed to represent the best interests and the values and priorities of an organization rather than their own values and beliefs and tastes, in those systems, we're going to be disappointed by the amount of noise that we find if we don't do something to tackle it. You know, it's uh, what I'm what's really reflecting back to me is that this is kind of a practice in self-awareness mastery. It's kind of understanding perhaps, you know, a little bit of uh, our baseline as human beings. And obviously the beauty in life in many ways is that we're all different in so many different ways. And Absolutely. we're also th the same in so many different ways as well. But when we observe this pattern, now we have the power to perhaps have a little bit more control over it rather than just be the default mechanism of the design or of our environment and get swept up into that and, and make poor decisions. Because as you mentioned, uh, you know, this is a decision making enemy. And when you think about it, it's like, you know, these, these, these problems or these errors in judgment produce errors in many fields. And in particular for, for our discussion, it's like, you know, making investment decisions, it's, it's finding or investing in the right deal. It's making the right assumption in terms of the terms or the structure of the deal, whether it's the way that you're producing your offer to a seller, you know, from a purchase price perspective, a terms perspective, the way that you're financing deals, the way that you're structuring deals with uh, joint venture partners or other equity partners, um, and, and so much, so much more, even like structuring your team, your infrastructure. And so the question is, okay, so if we've, we've set the stage and we say, all right, well, noise is a problem. And here's how many, here's the different types of noise and errors and judgment that we could fall trap into. So what are the remedies? I mean, I think everybody's like on pins and needles at this point, like, okay, I get it. These are, there's some problems, Olivier, you have sold me. So talk to me about remedies. There are a number of remedies. The first remedy, which you're not going to like, is, is to solve the problem of noise in judgment by taking away judgment. That's what we talked about earlier when we talked about automating judgment, replacing judgment with rules and algorithms. That is the perfect, the only perfect way of removing noise because wherever there is judgment, there is noise. And therefore, wherever you want there not to be noise, you've got to take away judgment. So when you use an algorithm, you take away the problem of noise. That, however, raises a number of problems. One which gets a lot of airtime this day is the problem of bias in algorithms, which is a real problem, different discussion, but we could talk about it some other time. A deeper problem, frankly, is that a lot of decision makers simply do not want to delegate or abdicate their decisions to an algorithm and simply want to remain in control. And whether we think that's a mistake or that's an entirely legitimate thing from their perspective does not change the fact that, hey, they don't want to listen to the algorithm. So let's get real and find a way to help them make the decisions that they will make because they want to make them anyway. That gets us to the second approach, which is a set of techniques we call decision hygiene. Why do we call this decision hygiene? Because it's a bit like washing your hands or other forms of hygiene. It's prevention. 
when you wash your hands, you don't know for sure if the germ you're taking away is you know, the germ that would have caused COVID or that would have caused some other disease. What you know is it's good practice. And having that kind of discipline, that kind of prevention is a good thing that will prevent problems from happening. You will never know which problems you are preventing, so you will not get the satisfaction of solving a problem, but you will get the results of, uh, of your hygiene and your discipline. And basically adopting good decision-making practices, good decision hygiene, as we call it, will reduce the noise in your, in your decisions, whether it's the occasion noise, the pattern noise, or the level noise. There's a number of techniques for that. We can talk about some of those. Maybe the ones that would be best applicable to investments would be the ones you're... So let's take a couple of examples, which uh, to, to, be, to be honest, I haven't seen them applied in real estate investments, but I've seen them applied quite a bit in um, other types of investments like private equity and venture capital. And perhaps there are some lessons that can be um, transposed with you know, the changes that your listeners will mentally make as they listen to this to adapt them to their environment that they're familiar with and I'm not. The first easy technique, very easy technique to reduce noise is actually to take advantage of noise. It's to take advantage of the fact that different people looking at the same problem will have different assessments and to take advantage of the fact that the average of those assessments is likely to be closer to the truth than any of those individual assessments. That, that's the principle of the wisdom of crowds. It's simply the principle that you apply if you, if you realize that your bathroom scale is a bit noisy. If you step in it you know, several times, you will get a different read. What do you do then? If you want to have the best estimate of your weight, you will take the average of several readings. Same thing here. If you get several people to look at the same asset and to give you their price on it, the average price that these qualified people give you, of course, you can't just pick a random person on the street, the average price that these qualified people will give you is likely to be closer to the truth. With a big condition, though, and that condition is rarely met in reality unless we pay attention to it. The condition is independence. Those assessments are only going to be valuable to aggregate, valuable to average, if they are made independently of each other. So if you want to have several assessments of the same asset, make sure that the people who are assessing that asset, who are pricing that asset, are doing the same work separately. Now, of course, you're thinking, wow, that's costly. Right? I, I can't do my due diligence twice. That's a very serious problem. Uh, and in some situations, you can and it's worth it. In other situations, you can't and you shouldn't. That raises an issue that we're going to find with all noise reduction techniques, which is, what is the cost of noise reduction and is it worth it? It's a question that you should ask. And the answer is not always that all noise should be reduced and eliminated at any cost. Of course not. There's a trade-off to be made. But to make the trade-off, we first need to know how much noise there is. So when we know how much noise there is, first thing you can do is average multiple judgments to get closer to the truth. So far, so good. Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor, then we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, a national real estate investment firm founded by myself and my business partner, Brian Flaherty. CF Capital's mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors like you maximize their returns by investing in high value multifamily communities. If you are looking for risk adjusted alternative investments in quality apartment communities, are seeking tax optimized cash flow with appreciation upside without all the hassles of management you might benefit from learning more about investing alongside our team. You're invited to reach out and learn more about how you can invest with us by visiting cfcapllc.com. We're also currently offering a free ebook called The Bottom Line, 10 Ways to Increase Cash Flow in an Apartment Complex. Whether you're a new or experienced investor, we're confident you'll find massive value in this resource. So go get your free copy today at cfcapllc.com. And now please enjoy the rest of the show. So far, so good, man. And and I just want to comment very quickly. I mean, I think that that is super interesting when you say take advantage of the noise and recognize that different people are going to have different assessments and being aware of that variability can help you hone in on 
perhaps what is that average if they are independent. I thought that that was super helpful. And I'm actually thinking about a particular deal that I'm literally looking at right now that we've had three different partners brought in their three different underwriting approaches for that particular deal, all independent of each other. And I'm like, oh, I've already done this ahead of time, Olivier. I, I already know this. I, you know, so I, I only kid, but I think that's a phenomenal example. Now, when you're talking about different underwriting approaches, that gets very interesting because it gets us to a different, uh, slightly different approach. Just taking the straight average of the answers that you get is one thing. Talking about different approaches and trying to understand what the models are that your different experts are bringing to the case is a different issue. Because if you do that, you might be able with time and with experience and with practice to identify what you would want your model to be. So suppose that you're looking at an asset and you've got different people who tell you completely different prices. Well, you can say, let's take the average and move on. Or you can put them together in a room and have them discuss the case. And maybe one of them is going to convince the others who are going to say, well, yeah, you're right. There's something I had missed. Great. But maybe they're going to say, well, we have different fundamental beliefs. We value different things. We care about different aspects, about different parameters. And then the question this raises for you as the person who ultimately has to make the decision based on the inputs of those experts is, what matters to you? You can't let it be the case that depending on the happenstance of which expert does the assessment, what matters to your assessment is going to be different. If one person cares about, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a really stupid example here for real estate because all these things are very important to everyone, but if one person cares about the location and another one cares mostly about the condition of the building that you're buying, you presumably have some sort of weighting of these criteria, some sort of set of priorities that you want to take into account that does not vary from one case to the next, that should be applied uniformly, and that should not depend on who happens to be doing the assessment for you. So having those people compare and confront their models of how they're doing their assessment will help you to clarify your criteria. It will help you, in our language, structure your decision-making process. By the time you've done that, you will end up with something more structured than most people typically have in a situation like this, which is some set of criteria, some set of assessments that you're making, which I'm sure most of your listeners have in some way, shape, or form. But the more structured, the better. And the more disciplined you are in applying that structure, the better. I totally agree. And uh, we live in a world with endless variables. And so how can we create some rules that, you know, keep those variables in check and that, you know, if we do have various experts can help us measure the variables in the capacity that we have weighted their importance. So I think that's super powerful and valuable. When you think of decision hygiene, are there any other examples or processes that you might suggest for the folks to uh, consider? Many. The, the next one actually comes right on the heels of what you just said. We tried, we, so suppose that you're making an assessment of a particular case. Let's say it's a building again, since we're talking real estate. We always want to find what's specific in that case. If we have a list of criteria that we apply mechanically, our instinct is always going to be to say, yeah, sure, mechanically, this one should be worth X, or this one should not be on our list because of Y. But there is something special about this one. There is something that isn't in our list of criteria that really makes it special. Or there is something about this particular case that makes me want to give a different weight to one of the criteria. For instance, this location is really outstanding. And therefore, the fact that the condition of the building is not great takes a much lower priority. Now, maybe that's sensible, right? I'm not going to tell you that it's always wrong. But what we know from a lot of research is that more often than not, when we do this kind of adjustment, we're going to be adding noise, not signal. We're going to be adding error, not insight. When we think we're smart, when we think we are 
fine-tuning the model and not being mechanical about it, more often than not, we're actually worse, we're making the result worse than if we had let the model be the model. Once we have defined the rule that we want to follow, we should stick to it. And that is really, really hard because we're looking at a case and it just looks like we know better. I'm going to take an example that I'm more familiar with and I can tell you the story. When you're doing recruiting, right, you have a list of criteria, you have a job description, you have grids that tell you how to evaluate the candidates. I can't tell you how many times I've been staring at the grid telling me, you know, good, you're good enough, and looking at the candidate and thinking, no, not good enough. Now, what should I trust? My gut feeling, or the opposite, by the way, you know, the grid telling me not great, and me thinking, wow, I really love the guy. What should I trust? My judgment, my gut feeling, or my model, the rules? Everyone will answer in their own way, but the research has a very clear answer. The research says, trust the model, unless there is an exception, unless there is something you don't, something you do know that the model does not know that is a truly decisive factor that really changes the outcome. It's what in decision science is called a broken leg. So if you've got a model that predicts what you're going to do tonight, and the model is very reliable, but I happen to know that you broke your leg today, I can override the model. But there has got to be for me to trust my judgment over and above what the model tells me, there has got to be something like that. There has got to be something decisive. There has got to be a broken leg. Otherwise, I should resist the temptation to say, ha, I know better. I've got so much experience and expertise. That's really hard. I like that you just shared that, you know, we've got to resist that temptation and that this research shows that we should trust the model. When the model is built, it's been tested and strengthened over time. You trust the model. And our tendency is to think that we're smarter than the model. But what you're sharing with us is that unless there's a significant outlier issue happening, we should trust the model. So that's very powerful. And I think about assuming, assuming, of course, I should have said that, Tyler, that the model is good in the first place. Yeah, right. Of course. <laughs> assuming that the model does reflect everything that we wanted to reflect and is based on solid data and on good evidence and on good analysis, which very often is actually not the case. So here I'm assuming that you've got a good enough model in the first place. Matt, I love this because we are actually paid on decisions. We make money on decisions. We create outcomes based on the effectiveness of our decisions. So your work could not be critically more important. I think about some other judgments that we make as real estate investors. I think about, well, first of all, obviously we've talked about this, but how much should we pay for a particular acquisition? How long will a project take? Whether it's a new development project, whether it's a significant rehab project, um, you know, what type of CapEx budget should we have? What's, what is our renovation plan? Um, you know, thinking about general contractors or subcontractors and what they may suggest for, uh, you know, a cost of a particular project. And obviously we're making a decision. You just mentioned recruiting team members, hiring decisions, so much more daily. I mean, we're making decisions daily. And so I think that this is such an important distinction and discussion and learning for us. Thinking about noise versus cognitive bias. Could you tell me a little bit about the difference there and what that really is? Okay, so it's, it's a bit tricky, but I'm going to try to make it simple. When you are trying to make a judgment, say you're trying to estimate the price, well, let, let's take the example you just took, how long a renovation project is going to take. And you ask 10 people, how long is this renovation project going to take? We know from a lot of research that people will tend to underestimate that time. It's called the planning fallacy, and I can see you smiling. You're probably familiar with this from personal experience, as we all are. So on average, people will underestimate the time. There will be an average error in the direction of, you know, average prediction will be less than the actual time it will take. That average error is a bias. Average er bias is an average error. It's an error that on average people make. Now, if I look at the forecasts that 10 different people are making about the same renovation project, they're not going to give me the same answer. That's noise that we've been talking about. So quite simply, bias is the average error 
the fact that on average, the forecast in this example is less than the true time it's going to take to renovate the building. Noise is the standard deviation around that average. It's the fact that there is variability in the predictions that people give you. What is important and actually somewhat counterintuitive is that both bias and noise are components of error. Both bias and noise are bad. Bias and noise are equally bad. If you reduce noise, even if you don't reduce bias, you will reduce error. Now, when I say that, people start scratching their your heads and saying, but hold on, if you make people more unanimously and more precisely wrong, if you, if you make all your forecasters converge on exactly the same prediction and that prediction is wrong, you're telling me that you will have less error than when their predictions are on average just as wrong, but all over the place? And the answer is yes, I'm telling you that. Because the way to measure error scientifically is that way, but more pragmatically, because you actually do not, in practice, get 10 people to make a forecast, you get one. And your chances that the one will actually be closer to the truth because of variability do not offset your chances that he will be even further from the truth because of the same variability. So if you can reduce the variability, you reduce error. Furthermore, if you reduce the variability, bias tends to become obvious. And once bias becomes obvious, you tend to fix it. Let's take an example that everybody will be familiar with, gender bias in hiring. You may have gender bias in your organization, that's bad of course, but it's not obvious in most companies because even the most biased individual who is strongly biased in favor of men say they will sometimes hire a woman. It's very rare to find a recruiter who is such a chauvinist that he will only hire a man. So there will be an average error, but that average error will be somewhat masked, somewhat hidden by the variability around the average. If you have a system that makes it obvious that there is bias, it will become much more difficult not to fix it. And you will be much more strongly incentivized to fix it. So reducing noise is just as important as reducing bias. Both are sources of error. Both are important. Both should be tackled. And both coexist, correct? And both coexist. Most decisions have bias and noise in them. You know, it's so interesting. I mean, I just think about uh, success as an investor and really success as a human being, because ultimately being an investor, you know, if you invest in real estate, it's it's about creating outcomes that you want in your life, whether it's a feeling and emotion. If you really get down to it, it's about, you know, how do we feel about our life? How, how fulfilled are we by our circumstances? And I think about, you know, making decisions and I think about controlling variables, measuring those and thinking about averages and being aware of human bias and judgment and, you know, errors and judgment and, and noise as you've been describing today. But I also think about the complexity of our world. I think about the uncertainty of our world. I think about the changing variabilities, the changing importance of the weight of certain variables over others. I mean, I've obviously the past two years we've been dealing with a pandemic. We're currently dealing with a tremendous, uh, I would say, shift in terms of the global economic environment, uh, the marketplace and so forth. And thinking about making decisions in evolving markets and economies and circumstances, behaviors of large um, you know, populations of people, I think is important for investors to consider. I actually, um, I wanted to dive into your thought process in terms of making decisions in evolving circumstances, right? Because that's that's the fact of the reality for all of us is that things will always change. The content that we'll always experience is change. So talk to me a little bit about your thinking behind making decisions in an ever-changing environment. Ever-changing and uncertain, right? I mean, the, the, the key idea here is the reason we're making judgments in the first place, as opposed to just knowing, is that we don't know. If we, if we knew, if we had the answer, we wouldn't need to make a judgment. If you, if you knew your weight, you wouldn't need to step on the bathroom scale to find out. 
if you knew how long it's going to take to renovate a building, you wouldn't need to make a judgment about how long it's going to take. If you knew what the fair price is for an asset, you wouldn't need to make a judgment to buy it. Now, at any point in time, the judgment that you're making has a lot of uncertainty in it, otherwise it wouldn't be a judgment. Here's the key, you know, the, the, the key idea that we try to, 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 to describe in noise on this, on, on this issue. We call it objective ignorance. However good you are at making that assessment, I've got bad news. You are never going to be perfect. You're always going to get it wrong to some degree. And that degree is greater than you think. You're going to be wronger than you think. You know less than you think. You should be less certain than you are. You are probably overconfident. And that doesn't mean over-optimistic. That means overconfident in how much you know. You may be overconfident in being pessimistic because you are too certain that the world is coming to an end, or you could be overconfident in being optimistic because you are too confident, too certain that things are going to get a lot better. So the real limit to the quality of our judgments is that objective ignorance. However hard you try, however much, you, I mean, however effectively you reduce noise and eliminate bias, there is a limit to how well you can predict, how much you can know, how accurately you can estimate, because the world is a complicated place. That's just a fact. Now, once we've said that, the name of the game is to try to get as close as possible to the best possible answer. We all believe in all these judgments that we're making, however uncertain they are, that there is a best possible answer. If you're trying to estimate you know, how long it's going to take to renovate a building again, you're trying to make the best possible assessment of that. It is uncertain, but you're still trying to get close to it. Discipline, decision hygiene in how you make that assessment is going to get you closer to it. Another thing that is going to be very important in getting close to it is to remember that because of objective ignorance, you're going to make mistakes. Why is that important? Because, and this gets a little bit uh, philosophical, you you should resist the temptation to learn too much from your mistakes. You should resist the temptation to learn too much from your mistakes. The best decision-making process in an uncertain world will produce errors. The best assessment will sometimes be wrong, will in fact often be wrong. Here's a fun statistic or depressing statistic if you want to look at it that way. You're trying to decide between two candidates which one is the best. And you're assessing those candidates in the best possible way. If you flipped a coin, your chance of deciding which one is the best would be 50%. If you use the best possible recruiting techniques, how high are you going to get that percentage from 50%? What's your I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. For some reason, my mind went to 40% based, maybe based on the way that you're you presenting. 60, this you mean 60, 40, you mean you would be 60% likely. You're quite close, actually. You're quite close. You'd be close to 60%, which really isn't great. Most people, when you ask them that question outside of this context, you know, tell you 75 to 80%. If, if I found that candidate A is better than candidate B, the chances that candidate A will actually perform better than candidate B are 75 or 80%. Now that would require a level of insight into the future that is simply out of this world. No one is capable of that. With the best methods, you're, of course, there will be cases when you get it right, but there will be a percentage of cases where you get it wrong, and that percentage will be closer to the 40% that you're talking about than to the 20 or 25% that most people assume. So basically, you're going to get it wrong from time to time. By the way, you're also going to get it right just because you're lucky on some decisions that you make that were really the bad decisions. And that again speaks for decision hygiene. Decision hygiene means make your decisions the right way. Don't concern yourself too much 
about the outcomes of those decisions when you're asking yourself, what is the way to make decisions? Of course, the outcome matters. We're business people, we care about outcomes. But if you're changing the way you make decisions every time you dislike the outcome, you're going to make your decision process a lot worse. And if you think that your decision process is perfect, just because you've been successful in the past, you're probably mistaking your good fortune, your luck for skill. Those are two sides of the same coin. Such an important distinction. It reminds me of Nassim Tlaib's work in Fooled by Randomness. And Indeed. a lot of times, you know, we can make the best decision. We can be the most prepared and, you know, really focused on, on all of the things that we've talked about today in terms of isolating those variables, weighting them in the appropriate fashion. But, you know, the result of the reality of this world is that things don't always play out the way that we project them to play out. But that doesn't mean that there was an error in the way that we made that decision. So I think that's super powerful. And when I think of some of your other work on making decisions in uncertain environments, which is the fact of this whole exercise. This is not, you know, while you are perhaps a born professor, what we're talking about is real world application here. And, you know, I love your take on, hey, you got to have a contingency plan. Speaking of, speaking of real world, someone who makes this point brilliantly is Annie Duke. I, a uh, former guest player. on Elevate Herself, a beautiful, uh, I was thinking about her because... She calls this resulting, and I, I love the term. She, she, you know, resulting in her uh, lingo is you know, judging from the results when you should actually consider the quality of the decision on its own merit. And that's a really profound idea. I totally agree. Big shout out to Annie Duke, a former Elevate guest herself. And yes, that is exactly right. Because, uh, you know, the result may not be the outcome that you hoped for, but that doesn't mean you need to change the way that you make those decisions in the future. Because more times than not, if you continue to make the right decisions, things will play out uh, over the span of your career, over the span of your life. And, you know, even having a contingency plan, being willing to take risk, being willing to be more flexible, I think those are the keys as well. Um, and, and you've shared that so beautifully. Olivier, I mean, I could go on for hours and hours and hours and hours, and I'm sure we're going to have to do part. Trust me, I can too. (laughs) (laughs) I know you can. I know you can. So I'll try to not tempt you on that one, but um, I know we're going to really, I would love to dive in, uh, you know, part two with you at some point in time and, and talk more about strategic thinking, because I know you've got such a realm of expertise, uh, so many different capacities, but I think we've really wet the beak today to understand more about why we make certain decisions, why we have certain bias, why we have certain errors in judgment and how we can take steps to remedy those and improve those. But Olivier, before I let you go, I want to transition to the rapid fire section of the podcast. We call it the rare air questionnaire. It's all about being uncommon. And I want to swift switch gears a little bit and focus on you just for uh, a, a couple of minutes here. So Olivier, if you were to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you've read over the past few years, what would those be and why? Well, the most impactful book I've read and reread and re-reread is clearly Thinking Fast and Slow, and that's not going to be news to uh, most of your listeners, but I I do want to tell them that every time I reread it, I find something new in there. It's an incredibly rich and dense book. Um, and you know, I've I, I like to think I've read it pretty carefully, and yet there is always stuff that I discover in there. So if you, have, if you haven't read it, read it. If you have read it, reread it. If you have reread it, re-re-read it. <laughs> There's always something there. Um, other than that, I read a lot of books. And you know, I, was, I was thinking about your question uh, earlier. And the most impactful books I've read, other than Thinking Fast and Slow and a few others, tend to be novels classic novels. There is more to learn about human nature in any, uh, you know, Tolstoy or Balzac or Dostoevsky or or Henry James than than in most business books I will ever read or write. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. any novel that that really jumps off the page to you that that strikes you to to be one to share for the listeners today? All of them. I'm French, so I'm going to give you French names. But any anything by Balzac will will be a lesson in life. I mean, if you if you haven't read it. Yes, 
That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. We'll put links in the show notes as to where the listeners can find, obviously, Thinking Fast and Slow and some of the novels that you just mentioned there, some of the authors, we'll put links in the show notes as well as Noise, uh, as well as You're Making a Terrible Mistake. And by the one, way, correct one, it. One other it? idea, though, uh, biographies. I've been really impressed by the latest biography of Churchill. Oh, uh, by Andrew Roberts. And, and I've read a few biographies of Churchill's and uh, this one is amazing. It's a one volume biography. Very good. Yeah, I love biographies as well. I feel like it gives people a sense of the arc of life and decision making. You know, really, you're talking about decision making. I think biographies are a beautiful way to understand yeah. the mistakes, the triumphs, the failures, uh, you know, and the lessons that can be learned from those as well. That's that's amazing. <laughs> If you had to point to the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis, Olivier, what would you say about that? You know, <laughs> I'm not even sure I know what you mean here. Um, I've, I'll tell you one thing I try to do, which I've discovered after many years. Um, don't try to do so much. Don't try to be so bloody productive all the time. I <laughs> spent a lot of my life, you know, reading those books about getting things done and not managing to finish them because I was too busy, uh, and um, you know, and and trying to follow every tip and trick about how to be productive, and it turns out that you know after fifty some years, I've discovered that I can trust myself to do what I need to do. If I've got a deadline, things are going to be done by the deadline. So why don't I just step back and enjoy life a little bit more and relax and not try to be so bloody productive all the time? It makes a big difference to how much I enjoy life. Does it make me less productive? Perhaps on the margin. Does it matter? No. <laughs> I like that. Well, I can, you, you bring that energy with you, you know, it's just uh, a lack of, and it's not like a lack of care, but it's a lack of, you know, overdue or overwhelming concern for perhaps the worry about, you know, what could go wrong if you don't uh, get all the things done. So I think that's, that's a great way to answer that question, Olivier. I appreciate that. What's the biggest way that you elevate others around you? Um, I try to give some very simple advice to my students, for instance. You know, they, when my students ask me for life lessons, they are shocked by how trivial, trivial it is. I tell them to read books, a lot of books. You know, mankind has been on the planet for a long time. It's learned a lot of things. I'm amazed by how many kids out there think that they can learn everything by themselves. There is this ethos now that lived experience is everything and that by being an entrepreneur yourself when you start in your garage at 20 you're going to learn everything there is to learn well you're going to learn a lot of things unquestionably but you can accelerate that learning a lot by learning from what others have learned before you and books are a great way to do that so it sounds a bit you know school mommy to say you know read books but you know <laughs> I, I haven't found a better way to um, elevate myself, as you say, and I, I highly recommend it to people who want to elevate themselves. And the other thing I tell them that is, I think, you know, something I wish I had been told when I was 20 years old is try things, try stuff, take risks. You know, and, in fact, I, I don't even them take risks because it's really not a risk. People think they're taking risks when in fact, they're not taking risks. You know, you, you're not sure which job you want to take. Don't overthink it. Take one of the options. See if you like it. You don't like it, leave it. You'll find another job. <laughs> in three months time, the job that you decline today will still be there for you. You know, try stuff. You you may think that you're going to look inside yourself and discover your true self and who you really are and what you are made to do. It's unlikely that you will find something in there if you, if you look. So you, know, you don't know who you are until you've tried, try stuff. If you read books and you try stuff, you will elevate yourself. I love that. There's a, the depth of wisdom in that advice is, uh, is, is exciting and uh, it's admirable. So I appreciate you 
you sharing that with us today. And I appreciate everything about you, Olivier. I mean, I've had so much fun in our conversation and I just want to acknowledge you uh, for giving, not, in, not only in the way that you give in terms of advice to your students, but also in the way that you give in your work. I mean, there's such a depth of expertise that you bring to the world. And while you learn so much from novels and, and biographies, I mean, you're giving such a, a tremendous uh, value to so many people across the world through that. And, and uh, I just appreciate you. I just wanted to acknowledge you for that today. Oh, We're all making decisions constantly. <laughs> you bet, my friend. We're all making decisions constantly. And uh, I think your work is so important. So, Olivier, I really appreciate you again. Is there any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with Elevate Nation today? This was a lot of fun. And I hope your listeners who are still listening at this point, wow, you, congratulations, guys. You're really persistent. And that's an important thing in life. Uh, I, I hope they enjoyed it. I have no doubt that they did. And uh, Olivier, thanks again for being on the show. Where can the listeners find you and learn more about you? Uh, LinkedIn with my name, uh, my website, oliviercibony.com. And basically that you know, will be a good place to start. Outstanding. And of course, you can find Olivier's books on Amazon or anywhere that you find books uh, uh, that you prefer. But Olivier, otherwise, my friend, I look forward to part two. Thanks again for being on the show. Thanks a lot, Taylor. Elevate Nation. What an awesome conversation with a amazing person an amazing person, Olivier Sibony. And I just learned so much about the way that my mind works. And I hope that you did as well. I hope you learn more about how collectively human beings, we have errors in judgment and what we can do to remedy that, what we can do to improve the way that we interact with this uncertain world, these uncertain investments, these uncertain developments of our life, because ultimately we're always making a decision. Are we either expanding? Or are we contracting? Are we moving forward? Or are we falling back? Are we living in our higher self? Or are we living in our lower self? And are we making the appropriate decisions, of course, from an investment perspective with deals, with the structure of our team, um, with the way that we're implementing business plans, with the way that we're saying yes or no to certain opportunities, the way that we're structuring deals. So I hope you found as much value as I did in really diving into this conversation and this wisdom from an amazing individual such as Olivier. So I want to encourage you to re-listen to this episode. I want to encourage you to identify what are your top one, two, or three takeaways or key distinctions from this episode, because ultimately it comes down to identifying, isolating, and taking action and making an improvement. Because if you just listen today and are passive in terms of that absorption of information, then, you know, maybe at some point you might make a change, but the better way to do it is to say, well, you know, what is it that I want to consciously make a shift on? What type of decisions or behaviors can I make an improvement in or on? So I want to encourage you to isolate those, your, your, your takeaways, your distinctions, and also your action commitments, because ultimately that's where we start to see some change. That's where we start to see some growth and improvement uh, is by making a commitment. So I want to encourage you to share this with a friend, have a, have a discussion and discourse about this episode. And where is it that you think that perhaps you have errors in judgment, or maybe you have your own cognitive, cognitive bias biases and what have you observed in your actions and and have a little bit of a round table so i want to encourage you to share this episode with a friend and have that discussion but also most importantly make that commitment to take massive action and i just want to thank you so much again for listening because uh, we're going to continue to pour in massive value i hope you receive massive value today until next time elevate nation thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time thank you for listening to elevate if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.